That is, of course, if I can find my sermon. Excuse me for one second. It's never a good sign when the pastor loses his sermon. All right, here we go. Better to lose your mind than your sermon, I think. Okay, this is Acts uh, 4. Excellent. Let me go ahead and read this. Acts 40, 32 through 511. The believers share their possessions. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands and houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put them at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the field money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received from the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, How could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. And then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The word of the Lord. I don't know if you've been following along some of the uh, recent current events going on in the news world. I like to read the paper and see what's going on. There are a couple big events. Uh, I don't know if anyone reads the New York Times. Uh, but there was an interesting article that happened just a, a while ago. Did you hear about this guy who was stealing from the New York uh, pension fund? He stole uh, like uh, $250 million or diverted it to different places in order to go ahead and get uh, kickbacks uh, back, like $80,000 in vacations and $300,000. It was a big deal in New York, which has one of the largest pension funds in the world. But there was something that hit a little bit closer to home a little while ago. Did anyone see this article on uh, the Norfolk police de uh, detective who was convicted? Eight different, the lawyer's nodding at me here, eight different counts of essentially uh, uh, manipulating testimony in order to receive money from inmates. So he was a detective, but he was getting money on, on the side. He was extorting these criminals who would give him money and he would then turn and give different evidence to the judge and they would get lighter sentences. And so throughout his entire career in Norfolk, he was in the paper, I think, on Wednesday or Thursday. Pretty big deal. You know, it seems that there's a lot of these type of things going on in the world. You know, financial corruption is such a part of the world. There's the saying, you know, when you can't understand something that's going on, what you have to do is follow the money. 
Because if you follow the money, you'll eventually get to whatever the source of the problem is. Well, it's easy to kind of point to those guys out there, the big kingpins out and say, well, that could never happen to me. I'm not influenced by money. I'm, I'm above money. But the truth of the matter is that money has a grip on us as well, doesn't it? Because money is so tied to those key things about our life, security and, and uh, prosperity and all these types of things. It's, it's tied into who we are. I like what Zig Ziglar said. He said, money isn't the most important thing in life, but it's reasonably close to oxygen on the gotta have it scale. <laughs> Altruistically, we say, well, we're not affected by money. But uh, here was Mark Twain. He said, I am opposed to millionaires, but it would be dangerous to offer me the position. And then, of course, Pablo Picasso, the great painter, that said, I'd like to live as a poor man with lots of money. <laughs> money affects us. It affects us whatever we believe. It affects us regardless of the religion we profess. It was Voltaire, the French philosopher, that said, when it's a question of money, everybody is of the same religion. So money affects our relationship with God, but money also affects our relationship with one another. Who hasn't been involved in a relationship or a friendship or a family when all of a sudden money got involved and money changed everything? Maybe an inheritance issue with a brother or sister dealing with the disposition of assets or maybe you went into a joint investment with some friends looking to make money together and then things started to go south and all of a sudden money changes everything, the dynamics between people. We can all relate to that. Well, what I want to talk about today is what is the proper perspective we are supposed to have on money here at Church and Redeemer? Because we live in a community with one another, don't we? What is the place that money is supposed to have? Does the Bible speak about this particular thing? And I think this passage is extremely challenging to us. This passage is one of the hardest passages to understand in the entire scripture. And, you know, most pastors, they just sort of pass over it because of the negative connotations there are between money and religion. But I'm thankful that we are going through the book of Acts sequentially, and this just happens to be the passage for this Sunday. And uh, your pastor is either too foolish or too naive to pass over it. So we're going to dig in right away. And I, as I've been spending time studying this passage, I think this is what this passage is saying. I'm going to give it to you, and then I'm going to explain why. It's saying that we must learn to freely give what we have to the Lord and to one another, because God has freely given what he has to us first. Again, we must learn to freely give what we have to the Lord and to one another because God has freely given what he has to us first. Here are three points that I want to make. Number one, we must freely give because our giving is tied to the gospel we proclaim. Number two, we must freely give because our giving is the way that God has chosen to provide. And then finally, we must freely give because our giving shows we belong to the God we profess. So proclaim, provide, and profess. Let's go ahead and look at these. The first one, we must freely give because our giving is tied to the gospel we proclaim. Well, we see here in the book of Acts that they've been preaching the gospel. The gospel has been going forth, and the gospel has been spreading like wildfire. Just months ago in Acts 2, we see that the gospel is preaching over 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ that day, and the community was born. One of the characteristics of this community was the unity that they had with one another, the way that they lived together, the way that they shared in common with one another, the way they lived so affected the world around them that it commanded the respect of the people uh, who were on the outside looking in. And it says that they grew in favor with God and with men. 
And we see the same language in verse 32 here. All the believers were of one heart and one mind. No one claimed that they were any, uh, uh, had anything of their own. All the believers were of one heart and mind. That all in the Greek literally means the full number of them. Every single one of them were of one heart and one mind. Now think about that for a second. In chapter 4, verse 4, we see now that 5,000 men have come to faith in Christ. So when you add in women and children, you're talking about a church of about 10, 15,000 people here. That is the first mega church in Jerusalem. And yet the full number of them were of one heart and one mind. And why were they of one? How do we know that they are of one heart and one mind? Because in verse 32 it says, No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. Think of that kind of impact. Think of that impact in Jerusalem. Think of that impact in Virginia Beach to see a community of people that had that sort of spirit that they had with one another. Now the question we need to ask is, were the possessions still theirs? Is this some sort of Christian communism where everyone sort of lumped their possessions into one big pile? And the answer is no. We see in verse 32 because it says that it was their possession. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his. Their possessions were theirs. It still belonged to them legally. The title was still theirs. But something had changed. They didn't claim that their possessions were their own. You see, it may belong to them in title, but it had belonged to God in their hearts. They relinquished the claim they had on the possessions they had, uh, that, that they owned. And the result was the effectiveness of the message that was going out. Unfortunately, the Greek here is uh, translated as well as I would like in this version. But it literally says this. All the believers were of one in heart and mind. No one claimed any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify. You see how those two are related? They continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. For, which is left out here, it says, for there were no needy persons among them. What was the ground of their effectiveness? The ground of the effectiveness of the message was the life that was being lived in the community around them. Now that's not surprising to us, is it? Because we understand in the world that actions speak louder than words. Actions prove words. And this gospel of Jesus Christ is so radical that it claims to transform people's lives. Now, to be sure, this is a process as a person's heart is changed as they come to faith in Christ. But can the gospel truly be effective is there, if there's no life change in the people who, who claim to believe it? And so this passage gets at the heart of this life change. Because the truth of the matter is money is the number one sign to show where our hearts are at. Money is like a flashlight that shines into the inner recesses of our heart. And, it's, and shows forth what it is that we truly trust and we truly love. And so when you have 10,000 people all together exhibiting this life change, it's like an amplifier that is taking the gospel of Jesus Christ and blaring it to the four winds. Have you ever come face to face with this question, what is really in my heart regarding Jesus Christ? I confess I was confronted with it several years ago when the Lord uh, called me to go uh, leave my job and to go back to seminary. I'd done some seminary in the 90s and I was running the company. I was the CEO of a small business and living a very secure life. And I heard that call from God that he wanted me to go back to seminary to quit my job and to become a pastor. 
the flashlight got shined on me. And I got a chance to see and look into my heart and realize what was going on. And I didn't like much what I saw. Because what I professed with my mouth was a little different than what was going on in here. See, when God calls us to make a change, when He literally takes us and says, are these possessions really yours or are they mine? Is your life really yours or is your life mine? We're confronted with a question. And I confess I struggle with this and struggle with it because life was going to have to change radically for the Rodriguez family. But I remember by God's grace, something happened where I knew what I needed to do. And so this is literally what I did. I pulled out my checkbook. I took a check. In fact, this is the very check right here that I wrote. And I took, I added up all of my possessions, everything I own, got it into a number, and I put it on here, and I wrote out the check to Jesus Christ, my Lord. Now, was the possession still mine? Legally, absolutely. But who did the possessions really now belong to? They belonged to Jesus Christ. See, Jesus from time to time will tell us and ask us and make us put our money where our mouth is. This living for Jesus Christ is a very, very dangerous thing. Very exciting thing. But because I did that, I was able to see the blessing of God and the faithfulness of God and how He took me and my family on this journey of faith. And additionally, my gospel message was able to be amplified a thousandfold more because the, the, what was revealed in my heart came out that money was not my master, that the gospel message was powerful enough to change the heart of a tight-fisted person like me. Let me ask you the question, friends. If you are a Christian, if you claim to know Christ, to whom does what you own belong? Legally speaking, of course it belongs to you. But who does it belong in your heart? We must learn to freely give what we have to the Lord and to one another because God has freely given what He has to us first. We must freely give because our giving is tied to the gospel that we proclaim. I want to challenge you to be like these disciples. To go ahead to give up the right of your possessions. To give them to Jesus Christ. What does that look like? I don't exactly know. It may involve you wrestling with Christ and in the inner privacy of your own home with your spouse, just you and them, or maybe you alone, if you're a single, turning to Christ and saying, this is all I have and I'm giving it to you. Very dangerous. But let me tell you, you will experience the freedom of knowing that Christ is bigger than your money and your gospel ministry will go ahead and be transformed. Christ is called to be Lord over all. And we must freely give because our giving is tied to the gospel we proclaim. Well, this brings me to my second point. We must freely give because our giving is the way God has chosen to provide. See, God cares about His people. If you become a Christian, God becomes your heavenly Father. And He thinks about us the way a good father thinks about His children. Here's Matthew 7, 9. Jesus says, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? God cares about His people like a father. God also cares for the poor. Jesus' first message in the synagogue, first thing He said, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. 
The method, though, that God uses for caring for His people is the community of God. Deuteronomy 15.4, which we read earlier. However, there should be no poor among you. For in the Lord, the land the Lord your God has given you to possess as your inheritance, He will richly bless you. This call, this mandate to care for each other in the Old Testament carries forth into the New Testament. James 2.16, speaking of the church, James says, What good is it, brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. The heart of God is for His people, and the hands and feet of God are His people. This passage, we see a group of people, the church, ready to do just that. In fact, in verse 34, they literally quote Deuteronomy 15.4, where it says that there were not needy persons among them. Why was that? For from time to time, those who own lands or houses sold them. Now my question is, how does this work? What did they do with this money when they go ahead and, and sold it? We see that they came and they left it at the apostles' feet. The method of provision was people, but the prescription for that provision was the church. Look at verse 34. We see that they laid it at the apostles' feet. Verse 37, Barnabas sold land and field, and what did he do? He laid it at the apostles' feet. Even Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5, verse 2, laid what they gave, and they put it at the apostles' feet. And that apostles, who then appointed leaders, uh, who go on to be elders of the church, he's speaking of the church. The church is in intended to be God's mechanism for caring for God's people. It is God's family. To be a Christian, to be a part of a church, is a call to live differently. The truth of the matter is we are our brother's keeper. That our place to do that is here in the church. Now there's something in America I see squirming out there. That this concept is very uncomfortable. We want to be independent. We want to be able to do whatever we want. We don't want to be tied down by constraints. I'm, I'm speaking to me as much as I'm speaking to you. We, we want to be able to go our own way. We kind of want to view the church as a restaurant. You know, I will go here because I like the teaching. But this next week I'm going to go here because, oh man, the worship is just unbelievable. But i got to go try over here because the building, have you seen that building? That building's magnificent. I want to see the building. But the truth of the matter is that is totally different than what we're seeing here in this passage and in the New Testament. The church here, uh, illustrated and demonstrated as a church who is stretching and straining and supporting to one another. I'm going to ask Russ up here to uh, get ready with a little video. I saw this a little while ago. It was a very interesting video of a church uh, in uh, Schaumburg, Illinois, that is really taking this concept to heart. And I want you to notice a couple things as Russ is getting this ready. The first is this was an NBC report done by Brian Williams. Notice how the secular media looks at the church, and notice how they look at this particular church. Go ahead, Russ.
I saw this and to hear Brian Williams talk about the concept that people have of church and about this church. And I went on MSNBC and I looked at the blog posts of what people were saying. And you know, blogs can be a pretty nasty place where people basically say whatever they want. But here were a bunch of people, Christians, non-Christians, and they were all going, there's something about this. There's something about loving one another. The people want to see the gospel taking forth, not just in what they say, but in what people do. So here's my application for this. We have to recognize that if we are Christians, that we're all in this together. If you are a Christian, God is calling you to be part of a church. You may be members to Church of the Redeemer. You may have been for a while. You may be visiting and just checking out a church. You may be not a Christian at this time. You're still trying to figure this whole thing out. But if you are a Christian, God is calling you to be a part of a body. To stretch and strain and so forth. To be fed there and to feed as well. You know, Redeemer, we're not the prettiest church. We're not the biggest church. We don't have the best facilities. We're still very young. But it's not about any of those things, is it? It's about where is God calling you to throw your love, to be with the group of people to love. I want to encourage you to walk through our process. Taste of the Redeemer is coming up. If you've been coming in for a while and you want to know more about Redeemer, you're making a decision, where should I be serving? Come to that October 29th. That's going to be a great time to hear more. Also, we just finished our Inquirer Seminar, Read Redeemer 2.0 Doubled is that. December 3rd and 4th is going to be our membership time. We're going to do another Inquirer Seminar like on Friday. We're going to string those meetings together. And then on Saturday or Sunday, I haven't decided yet, our membership seminar. Where you can make a decision to say, this is where I'm serving. This is where I'm If you are a member of Church of Redeemer, we're going to be talking with you more about what does it mean to really be a member here? What does it mean to throw my lot with these crazy people? Um, and what does that mean? So we have to, one, join a church and be a part of it. The second thing we have to do here at Redeemer as our application is we have to get ourselves in a position where we are able to do exactly what the scriptures are telling us to do. To meet the needs of people in our church this way and that way. Now how do we do that? It means first we have to meet the operational needs of our church. In other words, you can't have a mechanism for serving people if you don't have a church in the first place. It doesn't matter if it's 30 A.D. or 2010 A.D., Jerusalem or whatever, you have to have operational needs met to make a church function. Now, I don't know why people are uh, pastors are uncomfortable talking about money. I'm not at all. I think it was because I was in business for so long. We have to pay the bills. It costs about $12,000 just to keep the lights on at Redeemer here on a monthly basis. And if you run a business, you understand how little that is. That's bagels. That's printer cartridges. That's uh, paper, it's music licenses, it's office, it's the internet, it goes on and on and on, all the things. And we run extremely thin as a, as a church. Frankly, we're underfunded for the things that we need to do. We need to increase our funding. So if we can do that and meet our operational needs, then we can start looking outside to our own people and then looking through our people to those world, uh, around them. You know, I called up Pastor Jim Samradic and I said, how do you do this? How do you give away 100% of your offering? You know, this is what he said. He said, we raise our budget off-site from people within the church, maybe even some other people that say, we want to go ahead and fund the operational needs of the church right off and get that off the table. So that's taken care of. So that your offering can be uh, given as a diagonal fund to meet 
people in need. And so I thought to myself, that's a great idea. This is dangerous when you're working on sermons at 2 a.m. in the morning. So this is what I did. Here's a crazy idea. Are you ready? Our fiscal year just began October 1. So I've done something crazy. I've set up a page on our website, RedeemerVirginiaBeach.com slash give. And at that page are a bunch of different levels of different units of what it takes to fund our operational budget as it should be. And I encourage you to go to that site and take a look. You know, God has blessed us all in different ways. We don't all make the same amount of money. We're in different situations and so forth. But I want you to challenge you. Gosh, is there a place maybe I can fill this particular role of helping to meet our operational needs? And then you can literally click on that, fill out a secure form that, that simply says, hey, I'm going to own this particular part of Redeemer. It goes to Tori, our administrator. I never see it. No one else has our season except for you and for Tori. But it's your way of saying, I'm going to own that particular area. Is it mandatory? No. Do you have to do it? No. Is it needed? Yes. I want to position us Redeemer in such a way that we can take this mandate to care for one another seriously. So let's meet our operational needs and move into giving. You know, that gal with the brain surgery, that, that whole thing, that was someone through uh, Jim Sobratic's church. So they were able to meet the needs of people in the church and to go out into the community. And it's literally transformed their community the way they're using their finances to reach out. We must freely give because it shows that we belong to the God that we possess. This leads me to my last point. We must freely give. Oh, I totally wrote that wrong. I can't remember. Here's the last point. We must really give because it shows that we belong to the God we profess. You know, it's interesting. I'm 27 minutes into this sermon. I haven't even talked about Ananias and Sapphira. But the point is, why I have done this is because I don't think that we can truly understand what's going on there without painting an accurate picture of the Christian community and what God desires for it. I want to look at the case of Ananias and Sapphira much like a lawyer looks at a court case. First at the crime, and then at the punishment. Now, I'm not a lawyer, but I have played one several times on TV. So I'm going to do my best. We're going to look at the crime. Okay, first the background. We see in verse 36 the godly example of Barnabas. He was made aware of needs. He felt God's call. He was obedient to it. He took a field. He sold it. He laid it at, at, the, at the feet. And we see that the, the apostles gave him a nickname, Son of Encouragement. Now, he wasn't seeking it or anything like that, but that's what they gave it to him. Now, with Ananias and Sapphira, they were also made aware of the needs. They felt a similar God call from God to respond, and they too sold a piece of property. And just like Barnabas, they took the proceeds, and they went, and they put it at the apostles' feet. But something happened that changed what Ananias and Sapphira did and what Barnabas did. When they got that money... And they got it in front of them. And they realized what they could do with it. It began to look more attractive to them. They, they liked the idea of what could happen. And so they made a decision privately to keep some of it back. And they went ahead and lied. Chapter 5 verse 2 says that with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of some of the money for himself. Now it's interesting this word kept back. In the Greek, it literally means embezzling. He embezzled part of the money from the sale. This is the first crime, embezzlement. I'm like uh, Kojak or something like that. 
Now here's the question. How can you embezzle something that belongs to you? The answer is you can't. You have to embezzle something that belongs to someone else. What does that mean? It means that the property's owner was the Lord, not Ananias and Sapphira. Now, by the way, this passage has an exact parallel to it in the Old Testament. It is the story of Achan and the Battle of Jericho, which also is right at the beginning of the community of God coming into the Promised Land. Keep in mind, they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because they've been disobedient to God's call. And God finally is taking them into the, into the Promised Land, and they are instructed to go and defeat uh, uh, Jericho. And literally, they march around the city, they blow a trumpet, and God breaks down the walls of Jericho, and they go in, and they put the people to the sword. But God also gives them another instruction. They are to take none of the plunder for themselves. Touch none of the gold or silver or bronze because they are devoted to the Lord and His temple. The plunder was literally called the devoted things. So what happens? They miraculously destroy the city, but Achan comes along and seeing a wedge of gold and a Babylonian robe and some shekels of silver and some silver, he takes it and hides it. It's interesting. The word for take in Achan's case is exactly the same in the Greek as that for Ananias and Sapphira. He embezzled. Now Luke, who read the Greek Old Testament, would have known this story exactly. He's drawing a parallel between those exact two things. You see, it's God's possessions. It belongs to God. And God gives us instructions about how we should live with the things that He gives us. And so Achan and Ananias are accused of the same thing, embezzlement. But what was the second part of the crime of Ananias and Sapphira? It was fraud, embezzlement and fraud, an intent to deceive. You see, they could have said, they could have gone to the people and said, look, we're really struggling in our hearts with this thing. Pray for us. We know we're supposed to. We said we were going to do it. But no, they didn't do that. Instead, they embezzled and then they walked right in front of the apostles and they said, here's everything. What were the motives? What was going on in their heart that would cause them to do this? Well, regarding embezzlement, the motive was easy. It was greed. It was flat and simple greed. But what was the motive for fraud? It was glory. They wanted the glory of being just like Barnabas, having a name attached to him, being shown as being a pillar in the community, willing to give all. And so we see the extent of their crime. How the spirit of oneness was violated by what Ananias and Sapphira did. Did Ananias and Sapphira care about the gospel? Did they fear injuring the witness of the gospel? The answer is no. Did Ananias and Sapphira care about the needs of the people in the community? Full well knowing that God had called them to sell that deal because there were needs in the community. Did they care about it? No. What they cared about was their stature rather than but God cares about the needs of His people, and God was offended. And so, there was the punishment. Peter says, you have not lied to men, but to God. And Ananias fell down right there, and then Sapphira afterwards. Now, whoa, isn't this a bit harsh, Lord? I mean, come on. What's, this punishment was clearly from the Lord. Nobody touched them. They just 
fell down and died. I mean, surely others have perpetrated this crime throughout centuries. I wonder if I look in my own heart if I might be guilty of this very sin myself. Why did they have to die? Three reasons. Number one, we must keep in mind that they were in the midst of seeing the most miraculous and extraordinary signs all around them. The apostles are healing people left and right. The gospel is going forth. They're right in the middle, just like Achan was with the walls of Jericho falling. And so this, this sin was even more grievous because of that. Number two, there was a tremendous intensity of fellowship at the time. This oneness of the people. And the more intense the fellowship, the graver the deception. And then finally, the gospel is going forth with power and effectiveness. And God doesn't want that to stop. And so he simply put his proverbial foot down and said no more. And so the consequence of this was the whole church heard about it and had fear what are we to do with this story? I close with these thoughts. What are we to do? We must give freely because it shows that we belong to God and profess it. But how? How do I end up as a Barnabas rather than an Ananias and a Sapphira? Because the truth of the matter is, if I look into my heart, it's so easy to be like Ananias and Sapphira. The truth of the matter is that we can't. We can't do this. We can't give of our hearts in this open way that Barnabas did. No way. We'll turn back. We'll quit. We'll become cowards. I know it. I've seen enough in my life. But the beauty of the gospel is that God has already done this before. Because God gave all that he had to us first. When we were needy, when we were poor, when there was no one looking out for us, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate thing who did not turn back, but walked straight to the cross and took our sin and shame upon himself and died for you We can give freely what we have to the world because God has first given freely what he has to us. So we must look to Christ and his Holy Spirit to reach into our hearts, to unclutch our tight fists, and to give us an open hand that cares about the Lord that is the only way that we will be able to become like a bonus and not like an animal. So we must freely give because our giving is tied to the gospel we proclaim. We must freely give because our giving is the way God has chosen to provide. And we must freely give because our giving shows we belong to the God that we profess. By God's grace, let's do that. Let's pray.